On this week's podcast, the Merger Master Series continues with my interview with John Bader, formerly of Halcyon Capital Management. We discussed his step-by-step process to analyze each new deal, which industries he tended to avoid, activism, and later contrast Elon Musk with Benjamin Franklin. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of January 27th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast devoted to the subjects of deal speculation, merger arbitrage, special situations, and the journalists and sources that surround them all. After three years working for Martin Gruss, John Bader joined Halcyon in 1990 as a portfolio manager and spent the next 28 years there, becoming chairman and growing assets under management in excess of $10 billion. He is profiled in Chapter 12 of the book Merger Masters by Kate Welling and Mario Gabelli and sat down with me in mid-January. Here is that interview. At the beginning of each chapter of this book, Merger Masters, which you're profiled in, there's a, a quote or sort of like a mantra statement from each one of the managers. And yours was about the idea of the necessity to evolve in business. And I was wondering if you could just uh, elaborate that, elaborate on that a bit. Sure. Well, I got into the merger arbitrage business at a time when it was very uncrowded, very few players. Um, merger mania was going on. There were numerous contested uh, battles to acquire companies. I think the risk rewards were incredible. The, uh, the uh, potential risk return was extraordinary and it was an incredible business. And then come 1989, when we were hitting into a credit crunch, it became pretty apparent to me that mergers might grind to a temporary halt because of a lack of financing. And that drove me to be looking at other things and I became very interested in distressed debt investing and I was fortunate because I moved firms at the time and I was a senior portfolio manager and I had people doing distressed debt. It was new to me, relatively Mm -hmm. new. I had had invested in the Texaco bankruptcy and some of the convertible debt and the equity but I certainly was no bankruptcy expert. But suddenly I discovered that um, it was just a great time to invest in distressed debt. Here we were in this credit crunch, and, and uh, you know, again, a few players, a handful of investment bankers and lawyers, maybe not a handful, but maybe three or four hands full, did all the deals, and things were priced very inefficiently, and a lot of people really didn't understand what it was they were buying and didn't understand priorities, even if they understood valuation and didn't really understand how bankruptcy worked, and so it was an extraordinary business. So... Some people call this style drift, right? And they say this is something you're never supposed to do in work, but you disagree. I think that if somebody who understands risk reward really well moves into a wholly different business, there may be a learning curve. They probably they can learn it. But I think that if you're doing things that are sufficiently related, I think it makes more sense. I think if you have a basic background in corporate finance, I think you should be able to operate in the merger world, in the restructuring world, and so on, I would be 
a completely incompetent oil trader tomorrow. Mm. Um, doesn't mean one couldn't theoretically learn a business, but I never looked to get into businesses that were were wholly dissociated from those I was in. I, I, I was in the merger business, then I was looking at many of the same companies that had blown up and looking at restructuring them. Many of the leveraged buyouts of the late 80s were the bankruptcies of the early 90s because they were good companies but with bad balance sheets. Right. Michael Price talks in the book about, he calls it the circle of life, this merger, then eventually restructuring, merger, restructuring. And so I moved into that, and what I, what I then did, which I think relatively fewer people did early on, is I started doing distressed asset-backed debt as opposed to distressed corporate debt. And I certainly didn't know anything or know much about the asset-backed market before I got involved in that, but I knew that the distressed debt business things were priced pretty high, things were pretty competitive, and I just started looking at it because I couldn't find many people who did it. Mm. And that intrigued me, and then we already had a small business when we had the subprime crisis, and then we were extremely well positioned to take advantage of that. And so um, I think by having sort of a panoply of strategies that are relevant to different points in time, um, some of which may be one-time attractive for extraordinary reasons, some of which may sort of be cyclically interesting or periodically interesting, I think it gives you a bigger wheelhouse. Right. And you, and you allude to in the book about the idea of sort of wanting to go to places where the crowds aren't there. Mm-hmm. And so I know you're retired now, but if you were to come back, can you identify an area in your mind that would be interesting that wouldn't necessarily be so crowded today? I might be looking at many of the same strategies in markets outside the United States, which mm-hmm. might be less efficient for one. You also want to look, I mean, deals are driven by what's going on in the world. I mean, everyone always says deals are driven by economics, the need to grow, the need to downsize, the need for scale, the need to cope with changes in the business climate. But then there sometimes are periodic legal or regulatory things that affect business climatic change, which create opportunities. So one thing I'm focused on right now are opportunity zones, in part because I live in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. For those listeners who are not familiar with opportunity zones, essentially, Uh, When the new tax code was devised, the idea was to uh, encourage investment in areas that were were really downtrodden and in Mm -hmm. bad shape, and and uh, a lot of these areas are are really you know dangerous, not so not such great places. But it turns out, in the wake of the hurricane, all of Puerto Rico has been declared an opportunity zone. And I didn't move to Puerto Rico because of that, but suddenly there was a an enormous amount of capital mm. that wants to invest there. The, the idea was to encourage investment in opportunity zone. What they say is if you have a capital gain, whether in securities, whether in real estate, whether in art, you name it, if instead of paying the taxes, you reinvest that money in an opportunity zone after, and you keep it there for 10 years, there's no tax whatsoever. If you keep it there for, for a bit over eight years, the taxes begin to decline. But the point is, this is stimulating a lot of interest. And, you know, early movers often have advantages. Now, I'm a bit concerned that the, uh, I think we're in heady times right now. I think that. When you say we, do you mean we, Puerto Rico? I think that most asset classes, even after a bit of correction, are at the high end of their 
valuations. I'm concerned about rates going up. One area I think down the road that's going to be interesting, again, I think we're going to have another distress cycle. I think it's a bit early yet. I think that's something I would be focused on. But I think that I'm a better seller of most asset classes right now than a buyer. And it um, doesn't mean there aren't individual stocks that get interesting after a correction like this. But overall, I don't, I don't get excited about valuations of much of anything. And, um, you know, at a time when I feel that way generally about valuations, given the amount of money that would like not to pay capital gains and invest in opportunity zones, there may be too much money chasing too few deals. But I like looking at things that other people aren't yet that familiar with and being relatively early because, you know, when you're, when you're in it, it's easier to be in the Wild West than to be in a very mature market. So I guess speaking of the Wild West and, and Puerto Rico, there, I know that a lot of individuals that were involved in cryptocurrency trading moved to Puerto Rico for the tax reasons. Is that something that interested you at all or that you explored at all? I struggle with blockchain and these cryptocurrencies. I understand that certain bad actors need to be anonymous, and that's arguably a reason for cryptocurrency. And I understand that maybe in certain developing countries without banking systems, it may be a convenient way for commerce to be done. But I don't really, and I understand that some people don't trust governments, but it seems to me that the intellectual basis that a lot of people provide for cryptocurrency, namely that there's a finite supply, doesn't make any sense to me because you can just go and create another one. Right. And so to me, that's just a sort of an accident waiting to happen. And then there's blockchain and everybody's all excited about these distributed ledgers. And I don't quite understand that either because the idea of distributed data storage is not something that's so new. Maybe the algorithms are better now, but I'm, a, I'm actually planning, I haven't done it on meeting some of the guys who have moved to Puerto Rico, more, more out of a curiosity. Mm. doesn't have a lot of appeal for me. Okay. Uh, I wanted to backtrack a little bit and sort of just get into your early days. And, uh, you know, one thing that I found interesting in the book just to get started was your, your sort of entry into the business was due to the fact that uh, your father was Ivan Boski's doctor. Well, that's, that's actually not fair. He was Ivan Bosky's doctor, and that is how I got to meet Ivan Bosky. But that has—that's not why I decided to get into the business. Okay. You know, I—I I, um, when working for a computer company, when I took some time off from school as a as a programmer, um, I started reading about all these oil mergers and got very intrigued by these bidding wars and struck by the fact that in an auction, people often will outbid each other and overpay. You just have to go to Christie's or Sotheby's and see them raise paddles frantically and right. you realize that when you have a bidding war, oftentimes the upside becomes much less limited, the risk reward becomes very interesting and I started focusing on these oil mergers and couldn't believe how cheap the options seemed to be priced. I was pretty ignorant and but I started making a little bit of money and that's what interested me in the business. I was going to go work for Morgan Stanley and my father, who didn't know much about business, said, well, I'm so proud you got this job, you got this job all on your own and so on and I said, yeah, but I really wanted to work for an arbitrage boutique, and he didn't even know what that was. He'd heard, he'd heard the words. Or I said, or an investment bank doing a prop desk or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I told him who some of the players were. He said, Ivan Bosky, he's a patient of mine. <laughs> and so I was offered a summer job there. He said he didn't hire kids right out of college permanently, but I worked there for the summer, and then they made me an offer to stay, and I didn't take the job at Morgan Stanley, and that was my first uh, 
for it. That's how I got involved. And, you know, and, and you said from there you ended up working for Martin Gruss. And uh, I actually interviewed John Paulson two days ago, and uh, you guys were colleagues there. Still have a relationship today? We do. In fact, you know, John and I both spend a lot of time in Puerto Rico. I live there. He doesn't, but uh, he's made a lot of investments. We had dinner in Puerto Rico not that long ago, so uh, uh, he's a good man. Yes. It's interesting in the way that sometimes you see this in professional sports. Like, I'll, I'll use the example of Bill Belichick, that there's this coaching family tree, you know, that people who were assistants for Belichick became their head coaches and then those assistants became coaches and there's almost this family tree in merger arbitrage and one of the main pinpoints of this is Martin Gruse. What would you say were the biggest lessons that you learned from him? I think that Marty had certain aphorisms, some of which came from his father, some of which were his, which really were great philosophic principles. So one, one philosophic principle is you know, had to do with free, what he, Marty called free bets. His favorite kind of investment was a so-called free bet. What's a free bet? It's a situation where you think there's a pretty high probability of getting your money back and you've got upside. So that was the case in any kind of contested merger if you were paying close to the price and you believed the first deal would go through. Marty never was a fan of asymmetric risk rewards where you were just playing for a return where the downside dwarfed the upside. Um, but he loved the kind of situation where if you could pay, pay at the price or even a little over the price, which wasn't quite a free bet, but know that you might be the beneficiary of multiple bids, that becomes very attractive. And to that end, an arbitrageur who thinks like that should be very focused on valuation. I think that was one thing that distinguished Marty from a lot of the arbs of the day who might have been more focused on regulatory or legal issues, which is not to say we didn't focus on them, but it's obviously a lot more compelling if you think the company's being taken out at a low valuation, you know, at a much higher valuation, because that way there's ample opportunity for increased bids. And I think that, that one of the things that was nice back in, you know, the late 80s when I worked for Marty Gruss was that, in general, some valuations were not, were not so high at the time. And there were bankers like Bruce Wasserstein who understood that if he could get stock into the hands of arbitrageurs at a premium to a stock price but a giant discount to where what a company might be worth, it would enhance the, ch the chances that the company would ultimately be sold. And so, for example, I think it was in 1988 when Campo made a hostile bid for Federated Department Stores. I want to say the first bid was, I want to say it was $47. It could have been 4750 right. but the company went out for closer to $73. And the point is that it was, it, what was fabulous was it sure looked like the company was going to get sold, but it created something that's very different than the profile of a lot of merger arbitrage investments today, where you had gigantic upside, and so long as the company traded, not a lot of downside. So that was the first principle, free bets. Another principle that Marty preached, and I believe strongly to this day it's harder to do with institutional money, is to um, not kiss all the girls. You know, I forget who it was. It might have been Benjamin Baruch who said, uh, you know, put all your eggs in one basket, but just watch the basket very carefully. Right. Um, but um, Marty was a proponent of that. and uh, um, Which I guess you can do when you're not running other people's money. Correct. But I think philosophically, I mean, it's interesting. When I, I've invested for myself, it's not been a bad thing to do. You can't do that with institutional money. But sometimes you can also 
diversify yourself out of a profit and if you diversify your way into lower quality things and if you could really put a bit more into higher quality things I think there's some some sense in that did you find it like I've always found running other people's money kind of a burden um, because of that for that reason it is and it's much more freeing for me when I can just run my own do you feel the same way completely you know it's funny I, I when I worked for Marty Gruce he didn't have other people's money and he uh, he took it on really to help retain employees and so on and and I think it's a much harder business. I haven't been doing a lot of investing in the markets in part because I'm uh, kind of bearish on a lot of things and in part because I'm recently retired and taking a little hiatus but I relish being able to do things and just do it for myself and not really worry about uh, either diversification or... I mean he he never uh, created that assets under management in the multi-billions that you know some, a fund like Halcyon had. But do you feel like he, he definitely could have had he chosen to? I think that's so, although Groose tended to have fewer strategies. I mean, we at Halcyon, we had a number of different legs to the table. I, you know, I, I think it would be very hard to have a pure t- you know, 10 billion, 15 billion merger arbitrage. Right. There's just not enough deals. It's hard. You'd, right. you'd be um, some other principles, though, which I think were important. I, mean, I, I don't want to forget your question. This really was a Joe Gruce, Marty's father, an aphorism of Joe Gruce's, but Marty preached it was was to you know shop for stocks on Fifth Avenue, not in the South Bronx. And I've always been a big believer in quality. I, you know, in any kind of investment, whether an arbitrage investment or a, just buying a value stock or what have you, I'd always much rather buy quality merchandise with a lower expected return um, than buy something sort of gamey where with a lot more potential for volatility and downside. There was something you wrote when a new deal emerges. The, the first question that a lot of merger arbitragers ask is, what's the rate of return? What's the spread? And to your point, you said those are really not the first questions that you tend to ask. Well, to me, the first question is, is, why are they doing this? I mean, both companies. Why is the target doing it? Why is the acquirer doing it? You know, if, for example, the target's doing it because they're concerned their business is about to implode, you know, that's something to be a little concerned about, right? I mean, it doesn't mean the deal won't close, but when you see deals break, I think the most common reason for breaking, uh, it's probably not regulatory, the most common reason for breaking is, is earnings suddenly imploding or going south or going the right. wrong way and on top of which if it's it's being taken out for some insane if the if the, if the target's doing it because the valuation's stupid and the buyer's doing something stupid maybe there's some other pretext for getting out of it but um, that's not so good and it certainly reduces the chances of an interloper lobbying in a bid so you know to me the first question is what's the, what's the business rationale on both sides and what's the valuation and then the next thing I like to look at even before thinking about the rate of return is, is uh, you know, who are the players? I mean, we put some fancy name in our old pitch books about this. We called it constituency analysis. But basically, what I wanted to know is who are the players and how could they affect it? I, I remember years ago, Alzen Abbott had a, a deal that um, I avoided over time. I think I might have had a position initially, but I ultimately got out of it because I became very concerned. It was the world's worst secret that the two CEOs hated each other. And it's a little bit, if you like, if you know you have a wedding and the bride and groom aren't getting along, that's not a 
but, but you know, I remember talking to some other arbitrators about this, and including one friend who was a very sophisticated guy, and he kept talking about the strength of the contract and yada, 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 but of course the deal wound up blowing up because the people hate each other. So you want to know who's involved, how are they getting paid, what are their incentives, et cetera, et cetera. Then, you know, in terms of valuation, I want to, I, I want to understand not only how valuable the company is, but, but how accretive it is to the buyer, how accretive it might be to other buyers, who else might want the asset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I always like talking to planning and development companies about individual companies because they often were delighted to chat about them, particularly if they weren't involved. But they often would, would you know, somebody might say, you know, so-and-so has always been interested in this company, or they, they, they believe, I say, you know, you, you get a flavor for, you know, who wants to do what to whom in, in, in that business. And, you know, obviously legal and regulatory are important, and, and uh, tax could be important, and sometimes there are accounting issues, and, you know, but I think that you really have to start with the deal rationale, the valuation and the fundamentals, and and really the the, the, the risk and return are at the end. It's once you kind of have a, not not at the beginning, but sometimes you have to move quickly, and you sometimes have to move you know, without full knowledge. Right. And and that's what I was, I was going to ask you is a lot of the liquidity in these names is often on day one, mm-hmm. right? And when you have a fund the size of the one you had, perhaps did you ever felt a need to rush because we want to get involved in the liquidity is here today? I think most often over time when I felt a need to rush, it's because I think maybe people don't understand something. So for example... I remember when IBM made a hostile bid for Lotus and said they would start a consent solicitation years ago. And I just was struck by that example because back in 1989, and this deal was much later than that, but it was a long time ago, I don't remember the year. But back in 1989, there were a few deals like TW Services and Prime Computer were... uh, there was a hostile tender offer coupled with a proxy fight. And it became increasingly clear in a world of poison pills and so forth, the ability to throw out the board was pretty important. And in Delaware, as in many states, so long as a board of directors is not staggered, one can take action typically through a consent solicitation that one normally could take at a meeting, but there were a number of arguable advantages to a consent solicitation. Number one, the solicitation would be 60 days. Number two, the buyer would have more control over the record date. A company would sometimes try to control who'd be able to vote, keep the arbitrageurs out of the vote by setting the record date prior to the announcement or what have you. But um, the other point was, though, it's an effective gun to somebody's head because the day that the person soliciting the consents, the, the company soliciting the consents, uh, received the requisite number of consents, it was game over. And um, I spent a lot of time studying that back in 89, and there were deals like United Airlines and, and others where these where consents were used. And so when I realized with IBM Lotus, oh boy, they can force this thing to happen, there was, I remember a lot of people seem very confused by that mm-hmm. right on the day of the announcement. So I thought, boy, I understand this better. I mean, you know, buy now, do more work right. later. 
in general, I'm not usually the first guy to buy. I always used to say, let's do thinking man's arbitrage, not, not you know, I'm not going to out-trade so-and-so, and particularly with huge amounts of money. And um, maybe that means sometimes you miss some liquidity or what have you. But also, deals have ebbs and flows, and oftentimes it's good to buy in the scarce. Mm. You know, you might buy on the first day on some very vanilla situation where it's a rate of return and not very controversial, and you could always sell some out later, sure. But in it, particularly if it's a hostile deal or it's a deal that might have some, some perceived risk, which is creating a greater spread, usually they're scarce. And oftentimes it, it behooves one to be positioned for those scares. Right. Despite the fact that it was a huge deal gone wrong, you were the only person in the book to describe their experience with AbbVie Shire, mm -hmm. which was what you called constituency analysis or lack thereof in this case. Look, you know, the CEO seemed to be telling anyone who would listen, including in a letter to employees and, you know, conferences and so on, that, you know, how determined he was to do the deal, the, the CEO with the buyer. And we didn't really understand that he didn't have his board. You know, that's, that I think was the, the fundamental error. And I think a lot of people in the arbitrage community took great comfort from the statements that the CEO or the buyer was making. But I think the rug was pulled out from under. That's my perception mm -hmm. of what went wrong there. So, you know, look, you know, I've never used inside information. I, mean, I, can't, I can't be in a boardroom, but, you know, Sometimes, you know, reading tea leaves, you know, even if one doesn't get an answer, one asks a CEO or what have you, you know, is your board 100% behind you? Now, if they're not, I'm not saying you're not going to get an answer, or, you know, but, but, you know, even I've seen questions like that in front of 100 people and a remarkable number of people not sensitive to the answer, with the answer being a deer in headlights look, you know. So I don't know, you know, maybe one couldn't have known based on public information, but we made an erroneous assumption, and I think the assumption was rooted in the constituency analysis. When you were looking for an outside opinion, someone outside of Halcyon, you're like, I really want to bounce some, an idea off someone, who would be your first call? For example, if, if someone in the merger arb community, someone that, just a fund manager that you respect, you say, hey, are you in this? Uh, how do you feel about this? That sort of question. Or does that not happen? Do you keep it all in-house? You know, particularly as we got bigger, I mean, you, you certainly talk to people, you know people in the business, but number one, there's a limited amount of stock to buy. And I would find, you know, we had over 100 employees. I wouldn't even have time to talk to all of my own people. That doesn't mean they weren't necessarily talking to people. And I, don't, I think there's value in it, to be sure. I would sometimes make calls if I thought that People might have expertise in a particular industry, or if I remembered that, gee, this is in this this industry, and you know, such and such arbitrageur's father actually worked in that industry. Maybe he has insight into the industry, or you know, what have you. I found the most useful calls I made over time were actually not to the arbitrage community, but to planning and development people. You have to be able to speak intelligently to them and to develop relationships because that show you have some understanding of their industries or what have you. Mm -hmm. But particularly if you had a regular dialogue, even when there wasn't a specific deal going on, you might have a really good sense as to what companies might be appealing to other people who might have wanted to buy some division for years or, or what have you. Um, but there, there are a lot of people in the arbitrage business I certainly respect and would talk to from time to time. Another thing I wanted to bring up was in this business, 
because it's industry dependent. You can't just focus on one industry because the deals span all industries. Did you feel that over the years that you had an aptitude or a, a particular appreciation or an area of expertise in one sector? To me, it was more about avoiding certain sectors, which I thought were scary when it came to deals. So for example, I was always leery of distribution companies because the margins were so razor thin. Things, you know. Little... What What's an example of a distribution company? You know, companies that, that were really distributors of whatever kind of widget who might operate for, you know, two, three percent razor thin margins to get them to the people who would then sell it on. And the point is, if you have a two or three percent margin, you're only making a little off a lot of revenues. And the point is, your earnings can go really bad. Right. I mean, any comp any industries where the margins are razor thin scare me because a little miss can hurt you a long way. I get scared about companies that are technological where inventories might get obsolete. You know, if it's some semiconductor company where there might be inventories on the books and I don't know if suddenly these chips are obsolete or what have you. And we've seen that impact some deals in the past and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, I never was a fan of insurance mergers because they take forever and the regulatory um, would be very sticky. And the thing is, the longer the deal would go on, um, and this was an important principle I learned from Marty Gruss, and, and uh, this was something Jeff Tarr used to, to say. There was, a, there was a report that Jeff Tarr allegedly used to do that I started doing, maybe not quite the same way he did, which was sort of an aging report. You know, here are the two weeks deals, here are the one-month deals, here are the two-month deals, the three-month deals, the four-month deals, the six-month, and then the six-month and more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would do something for two weeks for a much lower return than I would do something for a month or three months or what have you, because there's a lot less can go wrong in that period. Right. I mean, the world can change over time. And so a lot of the deals that had very long regulatory utilities or what have you, the economics could be totally different by the time you achieved regulatory approval. So I would pointedly avoid those sorts of things. I've played a number of tech deals over time, but I'm more choosy. I, I was more attracted, I think, in bankruptcy to sort of some certain specific industries because I I just want I just like businesses where in, in, in a in, if I was going to be in for a longer investment I was I like companies where I really believe in sustainability of cash flows companies like cable companies or what have you but it's not really a specific industry right I actually had stumbled across a, a Reuters article from 2007 where you had gone to a conference and you talked about sort of the the emergence of the triple play and 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 who would benefit and who would not and you you said you had made concentrated bets in, in the cable industry at that point. Looking back, if you look back on your career, if there was one trade that you feel like you could do all over again, what would it be? When you say do all over again, you mean do, do differently than I did? Or mean do more of? Do or? differently. Well, I'm not sure how I would have known beforehand that Shire wasn't going to work, but I, that, I certainly got burned on Shire and I didn't like that very much. And then I guess on the flip side, since you're looking back, is which trade on would would you say like I really am like I'm proud of that one, I nailed that. You know, on the arbitrage side, the one I'm probably most proud of because I don't really don't know anyone else who did it the way I did it, it was nineteen eighty seven. And I was working for Marty Gruss. We didn't have outside money. I was allowed to, t and in fact, encouraged to trade my personal account. Marty always liked to, you know, 
how much are you willing to buy? And uh, in the wake of the 87 crash, happily we were up at Grusin Company. I was, I was trading a little more aggressively in my own account. I was down a little bit, not, not that much. But I had a position in Allegis, which was the old United Airlines. Mm-hmm. And in addition to changing its name, having been after a proxy fight from Coniston Partners, Allegis decided it would sell Hilton, Hurtson, Weston, which it owned, and it announced it would make a $2 billion extraordinary distribution to shareholders. And right after the market crashed, I realized I had a tax problem. And the reason I had a tax problem was because, or potentially a tax problem, which is that you can't offset dividends and losses for tax purposes. And an extraordinary distribution is deemed to be dividend income to the extent of earnings and profits and a non-taxable return of capital to the tune of the residual. So when you would play a lot of these leverage recapitalizations back in the day, whether these be some big extraordinary dividend, often you'd wind up with a big dividend and you'd wind up with a roughly commensurate ordinary loss and you'd make some money. But the point is, if you didn't have gains to offset against the loss, you wouldn't be able to use the loss mm-hmm. up front. And I realized, gee, I might have this problem. And then I thought, oh boy, if I have this problem, Coniston must have this problem too. In fact, even they bigger. Big they owned, I want to say, and I'm making, uh, it's so many years ago, but I had something like 13% of the company, oh, and, right. and, they, and they were the ones who put the company in play. And when I say, I, you know, I don't want to make any mistakes, it could have been 9%, not 13%. 13% rings a bell, but it just some, they owned a big chunk of the right. company, and they were the activists who put it in play. And what I realized, I said, gee, you know, if this were a tender offer and not an extraordinary dividend, my tax problem would be solved. I should call up the people at Coniston and point out that they may have a problem. They should agitate for this company to do a tender offer. In lieu of the dividend. In lieu of the dividend. And I said, um, well, let's look, though. And, and I, by the way, it wouldn't be just me and Coniston. It would be tons of people if they, you know. So what's different about uh, tender offers and extraordinary distributions. With an extraordinary distribution, they adjust option prices to the tune of the special dividend. But in a t- partial tender offer, you don't do that. And since tender offers are need to they necessarily need to be at a premium to market to induce shareholders to tender, there's typically what you call a front end and a back end. You, they, they buy a certain amount of stock at a premium and then it trades at a discount. So that in a blended value, maybe it's a little winds up being a little higher than the current price if values if this is a value creating opportunity. So typically, once the stock goes back tender, it drops pretty significantly, and with a partial tender, the puts wouldn't be adjusted. So I realized that the back end puts um, there, there was no premium because they weren't back end puts. Nobody expected the tender. If there were a tender, the puts would have been wildly more expensive, you know, by a ten factor or something like that. Right. And so. What I first did is I went and I bought these puts, right. and then I called up and said, "Hey guys, <laughs> you know, you should get." This. And I had no idea that they would change it, but sure enough, it changed, and that wound up being a pretty good trade. And what I liked about it was, you know, I just didn't know anybody else who did anything of the kind, and I did it for a really good reason. Right. I guess that's like a, I would say, a form of activism. But the standard, the kind that, let's say, Carl Icahn or Elliot does today, never interested you. You know, I always 
I was trying to build an institutional firm and I always wanted to wear a white hat. And I always, always felt that if we became an activist, companies would be much less interested in talking to us and so on. Um, I see how you can make money like that. I think it became on some level more accepted, although you know, certain people rail against it. I think it's a way to make money, but I just never really wanted to do it that way. And I also felt that there is a danger in it, which is that it's true certain companies are grossly mismanaged and make bad decisions and ought to be compelled to do the right thing. But I think when you begin to become a professional activist, there's a, as there's a temptation to try to extract value for the sake of extracting value and not doing right by the companies, and I think there's a danger in getting sucked into that, and I'm not saying that, you know, every activist does that or what have you, but I always, you know, I like the access we had in the corporate world. I like talking to all those planning and development guys. Maybe they wouldn't talk to me if I were right. an activist. I never minded looking to protect our, you know, what we bargained for as creditors. We took a pretty, we've taken, we used to take a pretty active role in a lot of bankruptcies, but there, you're a creditor, you already made a bargain with the company, and if they're not honoring it and you exert leverage, I, I always view that as a different kettle of fish. And typically, in that context, we were doing it not to, in any way, shape, or form, to gain control, but to ensure that our bargains would be honored. So I end each interview with uh, five questions for the guests. So question one, there's been a lot of coverage lately of certain people's morning routines. So Tim Cook's morning routine, or Michelle Obama's morning routine. Some people meditate, some people journal. Uh, do you have a morning routine? My current morning routine, which I love, is I uh, make breakfast for my son. I take him to school. Afterwards, I have coffee and read the papers and so on. And I love that routine. What about when you were active and working? When I was active and working, I never liked rising early, but you have to rise early in this business. So I would typically rise earlier, take a quick look at the papers and Bloomberg, and then go to bed for half an hour and then make coffee. Got it. <laughs> Question two. Had you never become a fund manager, what do you think you would have become? It's an interesting question. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a cowboy. Okay. And then... Uh, How are the benefits of that? I don't know. And then one day, I think I might have been 12, somebody asked me what I wanted to be, and my stock answer was I was a cowboy, and maybe some lawyer had been over to our house, and I said, oh, maybe I want to be a lawyer, and that sounded better to my parents than cowboy, so I remember someone said, oh, he wants to be a lawyer, and then I woke up one day and said, gee, I don't want to do that, and I took time off from school, really, because I wanted to see what else was out there before I finished my studies and I went and I worked for a computer software company and it was a bit early and I decided there was no money in that but it was interesting and uh, I was really drawn to this business um, some kind of principal investor maybe not in markets I mean it could have been private equity it could have been real estate I think that that's what excites me but you know maybe something that was not as you know, earlier in my career, I was more trading-oriented. I became, in some ways, more of an investor as we had more, more capital, and I always did some investing, but, you know, maybe some other principal activity. Okay. Well, this is a, a sort of a, a part B of that question, which was, if you could hypothetically write a letter to your 20-year-old self, what do you think you would say in the letter? If you were going to give one piece of advice to, a, you know, a 20-year-old version of you. 
be passionate about what you do without being impatient and uh, pull of what can go wrong. Question three is, if you could have dinner with any person, living or dead, who would it be? Benjamin Franklin. How come? Well, you know, I think a lot of people today don't have heroes, but I think that that Franklin was really an extraordinary man. He was a scientist, he was an inventor, he was a citizen of the world, he was funny, he was charming, he, uh, he was the first kite surfer of sorts. He once <laughs> said he never experienced such joy as as being pulled on a raft across uh, across the bay with a, pulled by a kite, um, I think that um, you know he's as close a thing to a hero as I have. So, a lot of people. He also, by the way, happened to have bought a lot of um, pre-revolutionary war bonds at a discount. Mm. So, also an investor. There you go. A lot of people think that uh, the modern-day Benjamin Franklin is Elon Musk. Do you believe that? No. Any reason? I think that Elon Musk is certainly a visionary, and I think he's done extraordinary things, and I have a Tesla, and I love it, and I get intrigued by all kinds of his different projects that he, have in, that he has in mind, but I also think that Elon Musk is... Um, while Franklin could be irreverent, I think that he nevertheless had more respect for what's right and wrong. And, and uh, you know, I think that Musk is apt to shoot his mouth off more than Benjamin Franklin ever would, which wasn't to say that Benjamin Franklin couldn't have been outspoken. And um, I don't think that Benjamin Franklin would have ever mumbled about, you know, wanting to buy his company the way, take his company private the way Musk did. I, I, I think that Musk is half the person that Franklin is, although he may be equally a visionary. I also think that Franklin was a better scientist than Musk ever would. Musk, Musk is a visionary who pursues things and knows how to jump on them and compel people to get it right, a la Steve Jobs. Right. But Franklin was really one of the leading scientists of his day. I mean, so I think Franklin was a better scientist. I think he was more um, more a citizen of the world in a way that it was be respected and more diplomatic, certainly. And and uh, he also had a sense of humor, which I haven't completely seen with. Uh, and he kite surfed, so <laughs> which is your big hobby? I love to kite surf. Question four, I'm going to give you, this is a bit of word association. So I'm going to give you a word, a phrase. I'm just going to ask you for the first thing that comes to mind. First one is Donald Trump. Scary. Second one is Netflix. Streaming. Uh, the third one is activism. A lot of things come to mind with activism because they're different kinds of activism. Perhaps necessary can be dangerous. Okay. And the last one is how to measure success. Individually. And the last question is, who has been the biggest influence on your life and um, what are you the most proud of? 
I'm most proud of the way my children have turned out so far. And uh, I think my family, without reference to anyone in particular, but including my parents, um, including my kids, my wife, not in that order, um, are those who, and my late wife, those who have influenced me the most. Okay. John, thanks so much for coming today. You're welcome. Thank you. My thanks again to John Bader. As a reminder, this is a weekly podcast. I often tweet opinions and ideas in real time. The handle is at Accord to Sources, A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O Sources. And as I always say, if there's a special situation out there or something that I'm not talking that you think deserves discussion, you can email me. The address is michael at according to sources podcast.com. That does it for the podcast for the week of January 27th, 2019. And I will see you next week.